0: Sometimes, important words can be hard to understand, like the insurance policy in your car or your house. It's important, it will affect your life, and most of us probably need a lawyer to fully understand it. There's other words that affect us greatly that are not very hard to understand, like the words, I do at a wedding or today's passage. Today's passage is very straightforward. Unlike some of the other passages in 1st Peter we've seen, unlike next week's passage, I encourage you to read next week's passage a few times. Next week we're going to start in verse 17 and go for a few verses. It's 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 intense. Today's passage is not intense in terms of understanding what it says. It's it's very straightforward. But what it means has really important implications. It has profound meaning for, for you and I in, in, in many respects. And so I can't wait to walk through this passage with you and, and see what God is saying to us together today. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this passage in, in six steps, starting in verse 13. And we're just going to listen along to what Peter is saying and what it means for us. Let's start at the top in verse 13, where Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The word now at the beginning of this verse is important, right? We've we've talked about this before, how often it's it's the little words in the Bible that that mean a lot. Now shows that this is not a brand new thought that Peter is, is starting here. But rather, this is a continuation of what he talked about in the last passage, which we looked at last week. Peter's continuing a line of thought that started up in verse 9. Verse 9, he said, do not repay evil for evil. And there's this idea there that when, when our enemies curse us, we need to respond with blessing. It's connected to this bigger idea in the Bible of, of loving your enemies. <laughs> loving... Your enemies, And Peter gave us a reason why. Why should we treat people good who are treating us badly? Well, he gave us a reason why. He said in verse 9, we should bless those who are cursing us. Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So we should bless those who curse us because God called us to this when he called us to himself. And as we do this, we have confidence that we're going to receive a blessing from him. So that, that was the first reason, just the first reason. The second reason, why should we bless those who curse us? The second reason is actually here in, in verse 13 in today's passage. There's a second reason why we should respond to, with blessing when we're treated badly. And the reason is given in the form of a question. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? This kind of question is called a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is like saying, um, who's going to clean up this pizza box that they left in the middle of the floor? Okay, so it's a question that kind of has a point to it. Like You sort of assume someone's going to be like, oh, that was me, I'll do it. It's a, it's a question that's saying something. And so when Peter says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good, the answer Peter assumes most of us are going to fill in is I, I, I can't really think of anybody. Peter's pointing to a, a general truth here. When someone is treating you badly, when someone's saying terrible things about you, and you respond with kindness, it does tend, in general, to diffuse the situation, to put out the fires. I mean, we all know the opposite is true, right? Repaying evil for evil or insult for insult it's a great way to get a fight started I was just this past week I saw just a couple of just mind-boggling videos of, of what seemed to be normal respectable people getting into silly fights with people in a grocery store because someone said something mean to you and so you say it back and then they turn up the temperature a little bit more and you turn up the temperature a little bit more and soon you've got you know People throwing groceries at each other, and that's 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 just that's just the way it works, though. this right? human nature, it's fallen human nature. That's how fights get started, that's how feuds keep going. But when we respond to a curse with blessing. In general, it tends to quiet things down. Think of Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And over the course of our lives, over the, the general course of our lives, if we're zealous for doing good, just, just think, about, think about that. Not, not just doing a few good things here and there, but like God has called us to be, zealous for doing what's right. Like we're passionate about doing what's right. Like this is our hobby. This is our, this is our goal. This is, this is what everything is, is built around, is us doing good, active good. If that's us, which if, if you know the Lord, it should be. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us. Then in general, we're going to make more friends than enemies. In general. In general, people aren't going to, have a, a real desire to come after us and to hurt us. And so according to Peter, this is a reason not to repay evil for evil. When we love our enemies, when we respond with blessing, it tends, in general, to lead to peace. It tends to pour water on the fire of hatred against us. Now notice that I've been using the word in general. Those that's important. That's an important phrase because Peter knows that this is not all, always true. There are going to be people who, even if all we do is good, they're going to be threatened by that. They're going to be upset by that. And they're going to try to hurt us even if, even if we're not doing anything wrong. Case in point, Jesus, like literally did nothing but good, healed people, fed people, cared for people, and they murdered him. Peter himself, you can read in in Acts 3 and 4, right? He heals a lame man in the name of Jesus, and as a result, he spends the night in jail. And so of anybody, Peter knows that the general truth in verse 13, generally, who's going to harm you if you're doing what's good, has some really important exceptions. Like, yeah, there actually are people who are going to harm you for doing what's good. And so verse 14, well, and it just even to recognize that Peter writes, for, from what we can understand, just a few short years before the emperor Nero went full psycho, right? So Nero was, the, was very likely the emperor when Peter wrote this letter, but he hadn't quite gone bonkers yet. And Nero went nuts. And literally, literally people think there was some, some real issues there. But he took out all of his fury on Christians and just did awful things to Christians. You've heard about the stories of him coating Christians in tar, putting them on a stake, lighting them on fire, and using them as lanterns for his garden parties. He, this, is, this happened. And Peter's writing just a few short years before that. So, so the Lord knows that in a few years, people are going to read Peter's letter and and he's going to say, who's there to harm you for doing what's good? Uh, The emperor, Nero, he's, he's doing that. And so verse 14 contains this really important exception that at different times throughout history has been more or less true. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, if and when you do suffer just for doing what's right, you will be blessed. If you've read the Bible a bunch, th- these words probably sound familiar. I think these words are probably familiar to Peter who had hung out with Jesus a bunch and had heard Jesus say, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you. Remember, revile means just like say bad things, insult, curse. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, speak all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Matthew five ten to 12. See, it's right there in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' first major teaching in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is preparing us for the fact that as we just follow him and do what's right in his eyes, we're going to suffer for it. But when that happens, we should not think, why is this happening to me? What what are you doing, God? Instead, we should consider ourselves blessed. We should consider ourselves blessed, present tense blessed. In other words, we've got the good life because one day we're going to inherit a kingdom and receive a reward. These themes of, of, of blessing in response to curse, they've never been far from Peter's mind. Last week, right? Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So this is the second stop we're looking at here this morning is, even if and even when we suffer for what's right, count yourself blessed, blessed. Not because you might feel blessed at the time, not because you know you're hashtag too blessed to be stressed, but no, because that suffering, which is real, you're gonna you're gonna feel, it's gonna hurt. That suffering and your response to it is proving that your faith in Jesus is is the real thing, and it's giving you confidence in your reward that, that Jesus promised you. Now, knowing that we're blessed, when people persecute us for the truth, knowing that we're blessed, knowing that our reward is great, that has an effect on us today, and that is fearlessness. That's our third stop this morning, halfway through verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. We've seen throughout 1 Peter that, that, that Peter has a mind and a heart full of what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. To Peter, that was his Bible. Now, of course, the Bible was being added to still then with books like Matthew and, and, and Luke and so on. But And Peter's writing the Bible as he writes this. But Peter's mind is full of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he comes back to certain passages again and again. One of those passages is, is Isaiah chapter 8. Peter already quoted from Isaiah chapter 8 up in his chapter 2. And he does it again here. These words that we read halfway through verse 14, starting there, they come from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. It's helpful to remember Isaiah's setting. Isaiah was a prophet in Judah at a time when when people were living in fear Because of of their two neighbors, or a neighbor and then a more distant neighbor, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria. These were the two big bad guys that were threatening to invade Judah. And so the people were terrified of of being conquered. And they're freaking out. And instead of turning to God and, and asking for his help and trusting in him, they were chasing other nations like Egypt, going to Egypt and trying to buy help Instead of instead of trusting God. Remember when, when we looked at Isaiah eight a couple of years ago, it's like it's like someone in your family is threatened, and instead of coming to you for help, they, they go to someone that they barely know. And you you're standing there saying, like, what? Like, I'm right here. And that's that's kind of what what God is saying to them is I'm your God, I'm right here. What's interesting is Isaiah the prophet, God's mouthpiece, himself could be tempted to get caught up in all of this fear and so in Isaiah 8 verse 11 we read this this is Isaiah speaking first person okay this is a prophet talking about his own walk with God he says the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying so here's what God says to him do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread but the lord of hosts him shall you honor as holy let him be your fear and let him be your dread these are the words that peter is drawing on here in 1 peter 3:14 and 15 when he says to his readers have no fear of them nor be troubled but in your hearts honor christ the lord As holy. I don't want to get too technical here. But there's some uncertainty about what exactly is Peter telling us not to fear. In in the original language, if you were to read this in in, in the Greek language that Peter wrote in. His words literally say, do not fear the fear of them. Do not fear the fear of them. So what's what's this mean? Is this saying don't be afraid of the people themselves? So the people that are trying to hurt you, don't be afraid of them? Is he saying, don't fear what they fear, which is they're afraid of being mistreated. They're afraid of being fired from their jobs and, and having people say stupid things about them. And so don't don't fear the things that they fear. Or is he saying, don't be afraid of fear itself? <laughs> Isn't it true that sometimes what we fear the most is just that experience of fear—it's so choking and crippling—and Peter's saying, "Don't fear the fear of them." I'll be honest; I, I have a hard time pointing to one of those options and saying that's that's it and, and nothing else. I, I'm, I'm uncertain. But what we can be certain about is what Peter is saying: is don't don't be afraid; don't fear. Whether it's the people or those other options, he's saying, don't fear, instead, fear God. You've maybe heard this phrase before, right? Fear God and fear no other. And that's, that's, that's what Peter's pointing to here. When you fear God, when you know who God is, when you know what God is capable of, when you know what God has promised, then you're not going to be in fear of, of mere mortals or the things that mere mortals tend to fear. Fear God and fear no other. It's also really, really important to note how Peter uses these words from Isaiah. So in Isaiah, Isaiah 8.13, this is the God of Israel speaking. And he uses his personal name, right? When you see in the Bible the capital O-R-D with the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's God's personal name. Yahweh that's God has a name and that's his name and he says Yahweh of hosts Yahweh of angel armies him you shall honor as holy and in 1 Peter 3:15 Peter says but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy it's not hard here to see that Peter is saying that Jesus is Yahweh Jesus is God. Just think about that. That might be easy for us, easier perhaps for us to believe, but for Peter, Jesus was someone, like he knew what Jesus smelled like. He would like walked with Jesus. He'd spent time with Jesus for like three years. He knew how Jesus coughed, what Jesus' sneezes sounded like. Jesus was a real man, and he says, Christ the Lord, honor him as holy. This, he's, he knew that the man that he had walked with was the son of the most high God. Isn't that, isn't that just incredible? And he says, honor him as holy. The word holy, we remember, means devoted to God. And so for God to be holy means God is devoted to himself God is devoted to his purposes. God is devoted to his plans. God is devoted to his people. God's holiness is our hope because it means that we know God is never going to lose the plot. I know I have disappointed my kids many times where I've said, we're going to do this and it doesn't work out. That never happens with God because he's holy. He never forgets the plot. He never forgets about his children. He, he never Steps back from something he's committed to doing. He's devoted. He's holy. When you remember that, it really puts to rest the fear of humans that we experience. The high and mighty rulers of people here on earth who persecute (laughs) God's children, those murderous gangs hunting down Christians that we read about this morning, they're not going to win. The lunchroom gossip about you is not the final word that's going to be spoken about you. God is for his people and he is holy. Nothing will change his commitment to be everything that he's promised to be. He will save his people. He will bring them into his kingdom despite the best attempts of earth and hell. And so as we fear the Lord Christ and honor him as holy then we're going to find that that we just don't have any space left in our hearts to fear other people. As Jesus gets bigger in our hearts and in our minds, then other people are just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Who cares? what they say, who cares what they do when we know, when we know who our Lord is. And that might just sound like a, a religious kind of a phrase that you're like, okay, I can figure out how that works in my head. But, but people, as you know, the Lord, this really starts to really happen in your heart. You just, you're just not afraid of the things that you would have been afraid of before. You're not afraid of the people that you would have been afraid of before. And, and you really, you really grow in this might not happen all at once, but you really grow in this. That the fear of man, the fear of other people, it melts the more and more that our hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And so what happens, we see in our fourth stop here this morning, instead of cowering in fear, instead of trying to hide our faith in Christ, you know, when people ask us what we're doing on Sunday morning. Oh, no, instead of, instead, of, instead of trying to shrink away, as we honor Christ the Lord as holy, we're going to have the confidence to defend our faith before those who question it. And here's, here's one of the most well-known verses and one well-known phrases in First Peter, what, what, what many people might think of when they think of First Peter, it's right here in the second half of verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This verse is the foundation for what we often call apologetics. Now, apologetics doesn't mean apologizing, like saying I'm sorry. Apologetics is a word that talks about defending our faith, defending the Christian faith. And it comes from this word for defense. The word for defense in verse 15 comes from the Greek word apologia, and that's where we get apologetics from. Now, some of you may not have much context here, but, but others of you will be familiar at some level with apologetics. When you think about apologetics, when you think about defending your faith, what comes to mind? When I think about a, a Christian apologist, what comes to my mind would be like a, an academic guy in a suit, really smart, professional, debating famous atheists, He's got brilliantly researched facts. He's got smart one-liners. Or maybe he's some guy on YouTube walking around a university campus with a microphone making atheists look stupid with his brilliant logic. Someone whose intellect and confidence makes us feel good, reassures us that, yeah, believing in Jesus is the most logical thing in the world that we could do but that's not at all what peter's talking about not at all this kind of academic professional apologetics is not what peter's talking about and we know that because what peter's talking about here is something that any christian is able to do and let's see that as we look at what he's talking about here in starting halfway through verse 15 first thing he says always be prepared actually that's not the first thing he said the first thing he said was goes way back right but this starts with in our hearts honoring Christ the Lord is holy that's actually that's that's how we are prepared see there's there's a connection here always be prepared is not about wake up in the morning and practice your debate skills always being prepared is connected with Honoring Christ the Lord as holy. As you honor him as holy, that's how you're always prepared to make a defense. Because you're you're not going to be walking in fear of people. Next, what what does Peter say? Always be ready to make a defense. This word defense, it's, it's it's a legal word. Like from a courtroom. Like... Like defending yourself in a court of law. But the way that Peter uses the word shows that this is like everyday life. He's not thinking of a courtroom. He's thinking of everyday life. Who are we to make a defense to? Anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's right in the middle of verse 15 there. So what's Peter assume here? Well, Peter assumes that Christians have a hope in them. That's a very 1 Peter theme, right? 1 Peter 1.3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We have a hope in the sense that there is something that we can hope for. And then we have a hope in that we really hope in that thing. Right? One of the things that you see more and more in our modern world is hopelessness. People have no hope. No hope that this world is going to improve. No hope for the next generation. No hope for their own lives. Huge amounts of of teenagers confess to walking around with a sense of just perpetual hopelessness. Suicide rates skyrocketing as people have nothing to live for. And how we need to be reminded that through Jesus Christ, we have a hope, a living hope. And hope is him and his promise to return and make all things new. And we experience the feeling of hope in in this objective hope. And so Peter assumes that we've got a hope. And then Peter says... Being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why would people ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you? Just think about that for a moment. Why would people say, what's, what's the reason for that? Well, Peter assumes that our hope is visible. That, In other words, that, that it's not this hidden little private thing that we keep hidden away somewhere. Peter assumes that our hope in Jesus changes the way we live so that the way that we live is different. And people notice that and ask questions. And, and again, this is something he's shown us in 1 Peter, right? In, in, uh, in his letter already, back up in chapter 1, 13 and 14, he told us to set our hope fully On the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, set your hope fully on Jesus coming back for you. And then what's the next thing he said? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So when we hope in Jesus, it causes a clean break with the sins that we used to swim in. And that causes us to stick out. Hasn't that been one of the big themes in First Peter? Is that people who hope in God, they stick out. They don't blend in. They, they look strange to, to, to the rest of the world. He's going to keep talking about this in chapter 4. And so as we stick out, that's going to make people say, what's going on? As we set our hope on the grace to be given us when Jesus returns... We're going to stick out as much as if we came here from another country, as much as if we're wearing snow pants in September. And so people are going to ask, what, what wh- why don't you do that, that everybody else does? Why don't you celebrate this thing that everybody else celebrates? Why are you so uptight about this or that? Why won't you go to that wedding? Why don't you watch that movie with me? Why don't you have another drink with me? Why don't you just move in with that person? Why don't you laugh at these jokes? Like, what's what's your problem? And in response to those questions, these questions that come up because our lives just look so different, we have to be ready to give a defense. Always ready. I remember when I worked construction, I... Stuck out. That part actually came relatively easy. You just had to not swear. And, and you, you really stuck out. But the hard part was always being ready. I remember some of you have heard this story from me before. I mean, they all knew I was different. I wouldn't look at the magazines they left out in the bathroom. I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk the way they did. They all knew I was different. And one day, I'm working alone with a guy... And it's just the two of us. And we had made pretty good friends and we're putting drawers together. And it's out of the blue in the silence. There's no one else around. He says, so what does God have to forgive us for? Like, talk about just like a, like an underhand, like, like I should have been able to hit that out of the park. but I wasn't ready. I, I, wa- I wasn't ready. And Peter's telling us that we have to be ready. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing being ready doesn't mean having all the slick arguments being able to quote cs lewis and all the apologists and right if if that's what you think giving a defense for your faith means if you think giving a defense for your faith means being able to spit out all those things that you see on youtube that's we're not we're not going to be able to do that and I think that's part of the pressure I, I maybe felt back then. So I got I to gotta just say it in like just this like convincing, compelling way, just like the professionals. But when we look at the rest of the New Testament, making a defense for our, the hope that's in us is way, 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 way more achievable and way more realistic. We see this come up in the book of Acts. This is, this is just this week that I discovered this. If, if if you want to write these down, I mean, we're going to not read all of these passages, but we're going to point to them. You can write them down. You can turn there. Acts chapter 22, the Apostle Paul. He's just been rescued from a mob by a, a group of Roman soldiers. The mob was going to kill him. The Roman soldiers free him. And he asks if he can address the crowd before they haul him off to to, to jail or, or wherever they're going to bring him. And in Acts 22, verse 1, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. There's that word, defense. Paul is going to make a defense for the hope that's in him. What's he going to say? Well, what, is, what does Paul do in Acts 22? He shares his testimony. In other words, in verse 2 to 5, he says, Here's who I was before I met Jesus. In verses 6 to 16, he he describes his encounter with Jesus and how Jesus convinced him to believe. And then in verses 17 to 21, he says, here's what Jesus has done with me since. It's It's just a story of what Jesus did with him. That's Paul's defense for the hope that's in him. Acts 24, a couple chapters later, Paul stands before the governor named Felix. In verse 10, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. There's that word again. And what does Paul share? Well, he shares a a variation of his story, similar things of who he was and what God did for him and what God's been doing with him and how he encountered Jesus. And, and, And in here, there's a confession of his faith. Acts twenty four fourteen to 15. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that's what they call Christianity, the way. According to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So see, Paul's, Paul's pointing to this. He's pointing to the word of God. Having a hope in God. There's the hope piece which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Two chapters later, Paul's before another ruler. And he says in verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. And he goes on again to share his defense testimony, his story. He gives his background in verses 4 to 11, his encounter with Jesus in verses 12 to 18, and then his life since in verse 19 and following. And then he wraps up here in verse 22 of Acts 26. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's Paul's defense. And do you see a big part of it is his story of God saving him, his encounter with Jesus. And of course, along that, along with that, he points regularly to the scripture and he points to the bigger story of what God is doing in the world. But. What is the reason that Paul gives for why he believes in Jesus? Jesus saved me. I met Jesus. That's his reason. He doesn't he doesn't share statistics and do you know how improbable it would be that the body was stolen like and I'm not saying that stuff's bad. But that's just not what Paul does. He just says how do you, I I met him. I met Jesus. He doesn't try to persuade anybody with loads of smart-sounding arguments. Like a herald, he just proclaims. And this is exactly what we saw back in the summer when we looked at 1 Corinthians together. As Paul described his ministry, we saw there that Paul refused to try to convince people using human wisdom or the skill of of professional persuaders, persuaders. 1 Corinthians 1, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Remember, that's what the people in the first century wanted. Give me wisdom. And Paul says, no, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's verse 17. And then down to verse 21, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness, the folly of what we preach, the folly of preaching to save those who believe for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles but to those who are called remember last week the idea of the sovereign God calling people to himself but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God So we saw this all back in in the summer. And you can can go find, uh, the sermon is called Weakness is the Way. You can find it on our website. Paul's whole ministry model assumed that God is the one who saves people. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls people to himself. And so it's not Paul's job to make anybody believe. He's just a herald. He just says, here's Jesus. Here's what he said. Here's what he did. And it was the Holy Spirit's job to convince people. And if that's good enough for the Apostle Paul, shouldn't that be good enough for us? Let me ask you this morning, you who believe, what's the reason for the hope in you? Why do you believe? Now, for some of you, logical or historical arguments might have a part to play in your faith. But if logic and history were enough to save people, there'd be way more Christians than there are. If you believe in Jesus, if you have his hope in you, it's because at some point you met Jesus. You had an encounter with him. And of course, I, you know, I don't mean that we all had what Paul had, the knockdown on the road to Damascus, but at some point, through God's people, through God's word, we heard the gospel, and it, it was true, and we believed it. You encountered Jesus through his word, and you saw he was magnificent, and you said, That's true. And you believe not because you stood up on a high hill and decided that, yeah, the gospel measures up to my very sophisticated standards. No, you believed because like a little child, God gave you the humility to receive his grace as a gift. Isn't that what Jesus said? Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, Mark ten fifteen. That verse has profound implications for how we preach the gospel, for how we do apologetics. If you believe it's because God gave you the grace, like a little child, to just say, yes, that's true, I believe it. And if that's true, then a lot of what we call apologetics, I think, can actually work against biblical faith. It can encourage intellectual pride, causing us to place our faith not in Jesus, but in our stack of good-sounding arguments, in our stack of evidence, in our stack of logic or philosophy. And we can try and use those things as a way to escape the shame of being an exile and a stranger and a fool in the eyes of the world. And see, Paul didn't care that he was a fool in the eyes of the world. He, know, he knew he was a fool in the eyes of the world. And so he just preached Christ crucified and let the Lord convince people and let the Lord save people. Now here's, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that any argument for the truth of Christ is wrong. The Bible contains some arguments for the truth of Christ. The Bible contains historical evidence, careful reasoning. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. And we're to think carefully about our faith And and I'm still open that there's a place for us to use the tools of logic and philosophy and history and science to show that the message of Jesus is true. But over the past year in particular, I've been rediscovering the simple and humble and profound way the Bible talks about these things. And I've realized that, like Paul, my defense for the hope that I have in me is that I've experienced the power of Jesus yeah, I know a lot of great arguments, and I can argue philosophically about all of this, but why do I believe? It's because I love Jesus. I read his word, and he's the most compelling, amazing, beautiful person in the universe, and I I, I can't help but love him. That, that's why I believe. I've tasted glory. I've seen too much to deny. I, his gospel is 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 the best news that my heart's ever heard, and Nothing makes me happier than worshiping Jesus with his people. So I, I, I can't help but believe. And that's my, that's my reason for the hope that's in me. I know, I know him. I know Jesus. Now, when we think about defending our faith in that sense, does it become a little bit more clear why we need to not be afraid? Because what I've just described is not a very good defense in the eyes of unbelievers, right? Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. And Paul says, well, the Messiah was crucified. And and they all went, really? What do modern, smug, self-confident, meme-making Canadians seek? Entertainment, self-affirmation, whatever it is, not the power of the gospel and so when we give it when people say like why don't you do this and we say I I, I read this and I believe it and it's true and it's amazing and and they're going to go really? They're going to raise the eyebrow and give us the smug smirk and it's going to be easy if we are not honoring Christ the Lord as holy to start to kind of wilt inside and that's exactly when we need to honor Christ the Lord as holy and say, yeah, I do. I do. I do believe that. And I fear God more than I fear you. Now, there is a pendulum here on the other side, and we've pointed to it already. The one pendulum is fear, and the other pendulum is arrogance and swagger. And what's interesting is, according to Peter, fearing God keeps us from the other side of the pendulum as well. It keeps us from being arrogant, argumentative snobs. And that's why Peter says in the second part of verse 15, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. As we defend our faith, we have to be gentle. The same word from gentle and quiet spirit a few weeks ago. Now, this doesn't mean we're not bold. Jesus was gentle and bold. But it means that we're not arrogant or proud. You know, th- think of the comment section on, on a video that says, uh, you know, conservative hero destroys liberal snowflake college student. Think of the comment section on a video like that. It's the opposite of, of what Peter's talking about here. Gentleness is, is not, you know, the deal with it pixelated glasses meme. Okay? It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the the spirit of Jesus that we see lived out by him. Gentleness. And second, respect. This word respect, you know what it actually is in the original language? It's the word fear. And so this isn't actually talking about respecting people, although that's a good idea. It's talking about fearing God. Walking in the fear of God. And respecting and, and and being gentle with other people, not fearing them, fearing God, and that gets us in the spot that we're supposed to be now verse sixteen is our last stop here this morning this is this is our sixth point here. this is our last stop, and this just kind of points to the, the reason for all of this. We saw those words having a good conscience so so in other words. We're not talking and acting in a way that when we go home, it's like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was too harsh or that was too fearful. Like, no, we, we act in a way that we're just, we're confident in the things that we're going to say and do. No regrets. Why? So that, verse 16, when you are slandered, this is going to happen. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, there's this theme popping up again. You're going to be slandered. People are going to say bad things about you. It's going to happen. But if you conduct yourself with gentleness and the fear of God, and you have a clean conscience, then those people who are saying terrible things, they're going to be the ones put to shame. That may happen here and now, just as your gentle response kind of makes them feel ashamed or maybe it's talking about when Jesus returns and they look at him and they say wow this is again another idea Peter's pointed to before but the idea here is that we d- we are going to be slandered but we need to act in such a way that the slander doesn't stick i think it was Catherine Hepburn who said about the tabloids she said i don't care what they say about me as long as it isn't true and, of course, she was in a different direction than this. But the idea is knowing people are going to say really terrible things about us. Let's act in such a way that that none of the slander sticks. That everyone's able to look at it and be like, that's clearly not true. With a clean conscience. And so, who is there to harm us if we're zealous for doing good? Well, truthfully, there might be some. So, even if we should suffer for righteousness' sake, know that we'll be blessed. Let's not fear our opponents, let's not be troubled, but in our hearts, let's honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us, yet, yet doing so with gentleness and respect, with fear of God, having a good conscience, so that when we're slandered, Those who insult, revile our good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And brothers and sisters, this is how Peter instructs us to defend our faith. How to defend the hope that's in us. Notice I'm talking about our faith, the hope that's in us. And so this is a passage that, if you know Jesus, this passage should be straightforward to put into practice. Let's ask some questions here as we wrap up. Do you have a hope in you? Have you encountered Jesus in his word? Do you believe that he died and rose again to redeem you and that he's returning to make all things new? Is that hope transforming the way that you live? If not, why not? But if so, are, are you letting it show? Is there any place where you're hiding your hope, trying to blend in because you care more about the opinions of small puny people instead of the person who made all of this is your hope obvious enough to make people ask what's different about you and when they ask are you ready not because you've got your five answers to atheists memorized but but you're putting your fear to death by every day priming your heart to honor the lord as holy you're ready to give an answer. You're ready to point to Jesus with gentleness and fear because you're trembling before God instead of the opinions of people. This is what God's Word calls us to do. And in the end, I think you see this whole thing. is—it's This is not about us. It's not about us convincing people. It's not about us persuading people. And even these things that we've been told here today, we, we can't conjure this up on our own. We, we can't always be ready in our own strength. We can't obey this passage on our own. And so it's really fitting that, that as we end here today, we're going to sing a song that looks to the hope that we've been promised and confesses that, that, that we need the Lord as we walk there together. We need him to prime our hearts, to pr- make our hearts ready in the fear of him like we've heard today. So we're gonna take a moment or two just to be quiet, to pray about these things that we've heard, and then, and then we're gonna respond in a song. Before that, let me, let me pray for us. Father, I'm asking that you would help us who believe to be always ready to make a defense when asked for the, both the hope that's in us as we honor you as holy in our hearts. Help us to understand this, Lord, and help us to put it into practice. We so need your help. And Father, may our hope be compelling to those who have no hope. And I'm praying, Lord, that you would help (coughs) our witness of you, our simple message about who you are and what you've done, to draw people to say, I want to know Jesus that way too only your spirit can do. And when you do that, Lord, we'll be the first to say this was not us, but rather through Christ in us. Amen.